Due to the graphic nature of this person's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of self-harm that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. The Honey Trap A woman who makes herself so sensual and cloying to her man of interest that he's simply unable to say no. The fatale can use her looks, sex appeal, and the guise of distress to bend a mark to her will. Often, these tactics are all in search of valuable information, otherwise unavailable through traditionally diplomatic channels. Honey traps are the stuff of espionage legend. We've learned how effective they can be, so much to the point that intelligence agencies all around the globe have regularly employed them. That said, once you know what a honey trap looks like, you can likely sniff out others. But in the case of Shi Pei Pu, we're going to dig into a story that played out quite differently than those we've heard before. Picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief. Did you picture a woman? We didn't think so. Society associates men with dangerous crimes. But what happens when the perpetrator is female? Every Wednesday, we examine the psychology, motivations, and atrocities of female criminals. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson, and you're listening to Female Criminals, a Spotify original from Parcast. You can find episodes of Female Criminals and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. This week, we're continuing our five-part special on femme fatales. These women have a bad reputation, and sometimes they are indeed criminal. But if you've listened to this show, you know criminal is a relative term. Some of these women were criminalized simply because they were powerful. Others were only criminals if they ended up in the wrong country's court of law. Today, we'll look into a scandal that's a bit longer in scope and a great deal harder to believe. The espionage affair known as M. Butterfly. This story spanned nearly two decades and two very different countries, but began in China. We've got all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hi, I'm Blair. Want to hear something scary? Join me as I read the creepiest urban legends, folk tales, and ghost stories that I learn on my travels around the world and that we receive from listeners like you. 
but only if you think you can handle it. Listen on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, sweet screams. Shi Pei Pu was born in the quiet, eerie shadow of World War II. In 1938, his mother gave birth to her third child in the Shandong province of eastern China. Journalists who reported on this case vary the pronouns they use for Shi according to how he presented at the moment. He doesn't fit neatly into modern ideas about gender, and his motivations for the affair were political, emotional, and most of all, mysterious. So for clarity, we'll be using different pronouns for she depending on the context. The child of a university professor and a teacher, she was surrounded by appreciation for the fine arts. His two older sisters were largely out of the house, so the youngest of the family found other ways to pass the time, like writing and singing. She even began as a vocalist in the opera under the guidance of his teacher, Mei Lan Fong. In keeping with Chinese tradition, she sang both male and female roles. While she presented as male, to take on the latter rarely warranted a second thought. After all, Mei was renowned for his performances of female parts. It was perhaps here as a performer that she found a level of comfort in where he fell on the gender spectrum. She performed in The Story of the Butterfly, a classic opera about a woman who poses as a man in order to go to school. The tale turns bleak, though, when the woman falls into a forbidden love affair with a male peer, and the opera ends with both lovers dead. Despite a deep love for performing, in his early 20s, Shi Pei Pu took a step away from being on stage. Instead, they moved to Beijing and worked as a librettist. Days were spent writing plays and opera and working as a Mandarin tutor for the families of diplomats. By night, she socialized with the intellectual elite and diplomats posted in the Forbidden City. Western diplomats were a somewhat new attraction in Beijing. In the mid-1960s, France became one of the first European countries to reopen its embassy since the Korean War had ended in 1953. After Charles de Gaulle recognized the new communist-led government, French expatriates were needed to staff the Beijing office. One of the young men who jumped at this opportunity was a 20-year-old Frenchman named Bernard Bossicot. To go to China seemed like an opportunity of a lifetime for adventure, for culture, and perhaps even for romance. But for Borsico, to be a Westerner in the People's Republic of China was to be an object of suspicion. Under communist leader Mao Zedong, the country had gone through long stretches of self-isolation from the rest of the world. Upon arriving in Beijing, Borsico was invited to the events of other foreign diplomats, but it was clear that most Chinese residents would keep their distance. This had a knock-on effect of making dating a near impossibility. And Borsico was restless to meet new people, anyone really. He hadn't dated widely in France. And he got the sense that some simply saw his position, embassy accountant, as a glorified bookkeeper. Still, Borsico accepted social invitations when they came. And in December of 1964, holiday parties were afoot. 
livening up the expatriate community in Beijing. He arrived at one particular Christmas party with a British secretary on his arm. From what we know about this time, Boursicault publicly expressed interest in dating women. However, he also admitted that the only sexual encounters he had before arriving in Beijing were with other young men at boarding school. It's important to understand Borsico's sexual history because it sets up so much of what came next, beginning with that night. After introductions and mingling, Borsico found himself fascinated by a young, witty opera singer at the party. That singer was Shi Pei Pu. Slim and dressed in a neat men's tunic suit, she was enchanting, speaking in soft, flowing French. Borsicot lingered, listening in on a conversation. In his eyes, this man looked like, quote, someone I would like to know. She, though, was more hesitant, perhaps even indifferent to the diplomat's clear interest. When Borsicot struck up a conversation, he engaged politely, but certainly with aloofness. She by no means went out of his way to keep the banter going. But despite the signals, Borsicot was determined to know Xi better. At the end of the night, he went so far as to intercept Xi's phone number. It was written down on a slip of paper for a potential tutoring student. But Borsicot was clear that he would be the one to make use of it. Now, we don't know if Xi Pei Pu just wanted to seem uninterested in Borsicot at the party or if it was genuine apathy. If she was a spy, this aloofness could have been the inception of a carefully set honey trap. Or if she truly found the Frenchman dull, then the fact that their relationship flourished after that is nothing short of a miracle. And flourish it did. A dinner date between she and Boursicot followed a few days after the party, which then turned into routine visits. The two began to forge a tight-knit bond, spending more time together. Though to any outsider, they simply looked like two male friends. This was largely because they were careful with the public portrayal of their relationship. Their association could be highly controversial should they draw too much attention. Nationals like Xi weren't supposed to have close, personal relationships with Westerners. But to Boursicot, their relationship seemed kismet. There was no guide better than a cultured, erudite artist to show him around his new home, especially since large swaths of Beijing were largely off-limits to expats. She guided him around the city, speaking gracefully about the centuries of history within each neighborhood. Between their stories and walks, she grew warmer. He disclosed small anecdotes, secrets, Boursicot thought. The diplomat clung to one afternoon in particular when she told him a story about being an opera singer. She recalled the young, beautiful women who fawned over them at the time. But she insisted he had no interest in any of these ladies. When she didn't elaborate on why he wasn't interested, Boursicot made his own assumptions. He thought the weighted pause that followed Xi's vague statement was his way of hinting at something deeper. Knowing this, Boursicot was keen to get even closer to Xi, but how the connection between the two deepened from that point on was based either on almost farcical miscommunication and denial or deliberate deceit. 
Coming up, she and Boursicot's relationship grows more complicated. Listeners, I am thrilled to tell you that this month marks a huge milestone for ParCast. It's the four-year anniversary of another fantastic podcast I host called Serial Killers. If you haven't had a chance to dive into the stories and psychology behind the most nightmarish murderers of all time, there's no better time than right now to start listening. Each week, we enter the minds, the methods, and the madness of the world's most sadistic serial killers. From the son of Sam, David Berkowitz, and the co-ed killer Edmund Kemper, to Eileen Wardos, Ed Gein, and coming soon, the Night Stalker Richard Ramirez. And this February, look out for our four-part special on couples who kill, following the worst love has to offer. Their names may sound ordinary, but their atrocities are anything but. Trust me, you do not want to miss it. With hundreds of episodes available to binge and new ones released weekly, get to know the killers, crimes, and cases that forever changed the face of history. Follow the Spotify original from ParCast, Serial Killers. New episodes air every Monday and Thursday, free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. In December of 1964, 20-year-old Bernard Boursicot was new to the French embassy in Beijing. Young and eager, the clerk took care to make himself seen around the social set. He'd even found what he worried he might not in China, love. With 26-year-old opera singer, Shi Pei Pu. Surprisingly, though, Boursicot's time in Beijing drew to a close well before his 30-month contract ended. In the spring of 1965, he was offered the chance to join an expedition in Brazil. Suddenly, the career of a pseudo-diplomat, which had once seemed so exciting from the outside, paled in comparison. After all, Boursicot got the sense that he wouldn't rise in the ranks of the embassy before his tenure ended, and Brazil had always been a dream. So in April of 1965, he announced his plans to resign. The French embassy should find a replacement. But what this departure meant on a personal level was far more momentous. He and Xi Pei Pu would be separated. After learning of this news, she was disappointed, but it wasn't the end yet. There was still some time before Boursicot would officially depart from China. Undeterred by the ticking clock, the two grew even closer. How their relationship escalated from friendly to sexual remains somewhat unclear even to this day. She and Boursicot told their versions of this story very differently. According to Xi Pei Pu's later interviews, the pair talked loosely about the notion of Xi's gender, but never directly about it. 
Much of Xi's explanation to reporters was told through metaphors and innuendo. Xi indicated that he intentionally let Bernard Boursicot misunderstand his gender. Apparently, Xi had shared an old photo when he played a female role in the opera Madame Butterfly. The Frenchman saw this picture and drew his own conclusions. To him, the photo was proof of a years-long facade. Boursicot himself had seen that men and women in China were still treated unequally. He thought it might make sense for Xi to pose as a man. That way, he might be able to climb the ranks of the Communist Party. In Boursicot's mind, sharing the photo was sharing a secret. It was Xi in her true uncovered element. According to writer Joyce Wadler, though, Boursicot insisted that what she told him was far more explicit. He claimed that she told him a very specific story. She's mother had birthed no sons, so to keep the family from disgrace, it was decided that she would pose as a male. This would placate anyone concerned with the child's gender and hopefully allow she more opportunities in the future. In the Frenchman's mind, he thought that he had met Shi Pei Pu, a woman, in the middle of a long ruse. To him, she had been living in disguise for decades, trying to uphold the sanctity of her household. Boursicot said that he wasn't at all bothered by this. In fact, he was all the more interested. Not only was she a woman, she was one in distress, or at least unable to live up to her full potential in communist China. He felt he had to protect Xi. According to the New York Times, after Xi shared the Madame Butterfly photograph, Boursicot was more plain with his intentions. He apparently said, if you are a woman, we should sleep together. Both Xi and Boursicot acknowledged that they had sex throughout their relationship, though the specifics are vague. Ordinarily, we wouldn't pry quite so deeply into the sex lives of our subjects, but doing so contributes to our understanding of this story. However, it seems Boursicot himself wasn't completely aware of what happened between himself and she in the bedroom. When they were intimate, the lights were off and she stayed covered by a blanket at all times. As the LA Times later reported, Boursicot, quote, attributed Xi's romantic modesty to Chinese tradition. Still, even if he never saw his lover completely naked, he felt no reason to doubt they were a woman. Around the same time every month, he saw rags with blood on them in the bathroom. It seemed like the proof he never knew to ask for. Xi's version of events was similar, though he claimed that sex was possible by simply creating the illusion of female genitalia. She also indicated that he didn't allow Boursicot to touch his body freely when the two were intimate. While this may seem hard to believe, again, we do know that Boursicot hadn't had sex with a partner identifying as female before she. All the same, it's a complex, potentially baffling situation to understand. Around the time Boursicot was set to leave China, the end of December 1965, she brought him news. They were expecting a child. Though he wouldn't be present for the birth, Boursicot was delighted at the idea of being a father and told she that he wanted the child to be named after him. Then he left. 
Bernard Boursico didn't return to the People's Republic of China for four years until September of 1969. This time, his role was as an embassy archivist. Still, despite the extended absence, Boursico felt it was of utmost importance to go back to Beijing and to Xi. Yet he returned to a country far more polarized than he'd remembered. Those in Beijing were less inclined than ever to associate with foreigners. The steady eye of government surveillance always loomed. To cross the line was to commit treason. And punishment could mean arrest and even jail time. He didn't want to make Xi's life any harder. Still, Bursico was sure he had a son and was set on meeting him. Wary of being followed, Bursico stole away to the neighborhood he believed that she lived in, and there he found his former lover. She was living with his mother in a sparse apartment, notably absent of luxuries. It seemed like things had gotten worse since Bursico's first stay in Beijing. Though the Frenchman hoped to finally meet their son that day, he was disappointed. She explained that the child had been sent away to live with family near the Russian border, where it was safer, where no one would be suspicious that he was the son of a Westerner. Bursiko visited again soon after, but this time he was followed by communist police. After trailing him all the way into Xi's apartment, they confronted the Frenchman. They asked what business he had in the private home of a Chinese national. Bursico tried to convince them it was a diplomatic visit, but as they questioned him, he grew more frazzled. Only once they'd finished did Bursico realize that she wasn't even in the apartment anymore. He feared she might have been arrested. Now, since their accounts of this incident vary, the confrontation with Chinese police that day could have gone two ways. The first seems a little more likely. Shi Pei-Pu was already a spy, and this encounter was meant to intimidate Bernard Boursico into cooperating. Or it's possible that this was actually the discovery of the couple's clandestine relationship, that as a result, she was given an ultimatum by Chinese police, work as a spy or face the consequences. The latter could mean severe punishment by the government. Knowing they were being watched, the former couple didn't dare see each other afterwards. The closest they got was sitting adjacent on separate park benches. They continued this minimal, subtle contact for weeks. Finally, when Boursico was nearly out of hope, he received a call. She had created a plausible excuse for them to spend time together. She would tutor Borsico on the nuances of Mao Zedong's cultural revolution. They had even asked their boss at the Writers' Association for permission, and it was approved. They met twice a week at Xi's apartment, but the two remained careful with their conversations in case they were being monitored. She did slip in small details about their son every so often during lessons, like that he too shared Boursico's square jaw. Hearing this, the Frenchman's great hope of meeting their child flared once more. But the reality that she was withholding was far more complicated. In later years when she was interrogated on where the child came from, their explanation was as follows. 
Before Boursico left China in 1965, she went to a local man named Dr. Ma. The doctor claimed that he could use a sperm sample from Boursico to inseminate another woman who would then become pregnant. She agreed and eventually gave him a used condom with Boursico's semen. She claimed that they paid Dr. Ma directly for this exchange to the tune of 3,000 yuan. However, even this detail has remained unconfirmed. Other sources have reported that she simply purchased an infant from a region of China where the locals were known for having more Caucasian features. To Boursico's dismay, only a few months into his cultural lessons, his time with Xi was yet again interrupted. A man named Kong replaced Xi as his instructor. Not knowing who he was, Boursico assumed his new tutor was secret police. For whatever reason, the lessons still occurred at Xi's apartment. But knowing that Kong was quietly monitoring their relationship worried Boursico. He worried this new setup was simply a front until they were caught doing something they could be arrested for. It was a stressful situation, compounded by Boursico's anxiety about his son. Fearing he'd never meet his child, Boursico took a bold move. He suggested to Kong that he could be of use to the Chinese government. Specifically, Boursico offered his access to the diplomat mailroom in the French embassy. Though it wasn't anything concrete, he hoped providing information of any sort might help. Maybe what he offered would be valuable enough to protect Xi. It was. According to the New York Times, Boursico's access to reports from French diplomats was lucrative. Boursico began passing embassy documents to Kong during their tutoring sessions. But the ongoing risk of passing along sensitive information weighed on Boursico. According to the Frenchman, he and she were tense with one another and allegedly were intimate infrequently, likely because they were under close surveillance. He remained unsure if he'd ever meet his son or if he could help Xi escape China. With such stress in his personal and professional life, time must have moved slowly for Boursico. But he spent several years in Beijing until 1972. That spring marked the end of his contract as an embassy archivist. Once again, it was time for him to leave China. Depressed but not defeated, Boursico left, clinging to some small hope. He was sure his cooperation with the Chinese government would be repaid in one way or another. Indirectly, perhaps it did. About a year later, Boursico was able to return to Beijing. He'd secured a travel visa for a few weeks and wanted to make the most of his time. Notably, he didn't alert any former embassy colleagues that he was visiting. Perhaps to reward the clandestine nature of his visit, she had a surprise waiting. Their son, Bertrand. Once Boursico arrived at Xi's apartment, he met the seven-year-old. Xi Pei-Pu painstakingly explained how he was brought back to Beijing for the reunion. Though she used vague reasons to justify why the child had been sent away in the first place, she insisted it was for everyone's safety. No one, especially the Chinese government, could know that they had conceived a child together years before. 
Despite the immense amount of effort he put into finally meeting their child, Boursicot returned to France soon after, and his behavior indicated that perhaps he was content to stay put, separated from his lover and child. Not only did he settle in Paris, but he also began a relationship with a man named Thierry. From what we know, this was when Boursicot began living as an openly gay man. For the next two years, he and Thierry lived in multiple cities, both in Europe and the US. It was as if Beijing, she, and their child faded into the background. Boursicot's ease was veiled, though. Apparently, he didn't disclose any details of she or Bertrand to Thierry until 1976. And when he did, it was likely because he was worried. The political climate in China was worsening. Boursicot was distressed, fearing what would happen to Xi and Bertrand if the communist government became even stricter. He had to do something. Now seeing a potential pathway, Boursicot wanted to try to bring them safely to Paris. All he'd have to do was take up another diplomatic position in China and arm himself with the proper collateral. Coming up, Boursicot arrives in Mongolia. Now back to the story. Bernard Boursicot wanted nothing more than to bring his son Bertrand and his former lover, Xi Pei Pu, to France. But getting them out of communist China was complicated. Boursicot anticipated he would need to proffer even more collateral to undercover Chinese police to do so. In order to have access to anything lucrative, 32-year-old Boursicot needed to return to the French Foreign Service. And the only position available close to Beijing in 1977 was the tiny French embassy in Ulaanbaatar, Mongolia. Still, Boursicot resigned to try. In April of that year, he packed his bags. There was no guarantee that he would be successful, but he had nothing to lose by going. Mongolia was as desolate as many warned him. There wasn't even a formal embassy. Rather, the French diplomats stationed there worked out of the Ulaanbaatar Hotel. What seemed inconvenient, though, proved to be Bernard Boursicot's advantage. The small, almost casual nature of the tiny embassy allowed him easy access to classified documents, which he could then pass on to his Chinese contact in Beijing, Kong. This was the same man Boursicot had been in contact with in the early 1970s. By now, Kong was gathering intel on the Russians. Specifically, he wanted to know more about what the Soviets were doing near Mongolia. However, Boursicot's information proved of little consequence to his contacts. What's more, he was bound to diplomatic errands as he traveled back and forth between Ulaanbaatar and Beijing. His schedule left him hardly any time to see Xi and Bertrand. On the rare occasions Boursicot and Xi were intimate, writer Joyce Wadler described it as brief and transactional. Xi was always in control. Passion, it seemed, had been replaced with duty. Whatever spark there once had been was gone. Eventually, even Boursicot's Chinese contact, Kong, lost hope that the Frenchman could proffer any documents of true political use. It was over. 
Boursicot left his post in Ulaanbaatar in late summer of 1978, though he still hoped to move Xi and Bertrand out of China. It took more waiting, but finally in 1982, he got his chance. In October of that year, Boursicot helped Xi Pei Pu obtain a temporary cultural visa to lecture in France. Xi and Bertrand went to live in Boursicot's Paris apartment. But oddly, Boursicot had already taken up another diplomatic post, this time in Belize. For a man so intent to reunite with his family, it did seem strange that he wasn't there to greet her. She was instead under the care of his French boyfriend, Thierry. When Boursicot eventually returned to Paris, his relationship with Xi was as nebulous as ever. While the Frenchman thought that Xi might finally live outwardly as a woman in Paris, she continued to dress and present as a man. Again, Boursicot tried to justify his confusion. Maybe she continued to live as a man because perhaps she thought she might go back to China. Any change in her appearance was simply too big a risk. So he went along with the ruse, as he understood it. He even lied to his loved ones. While Boursicot told his own mother that his son had finally arrived in Paris, he refused to disclose any more details, and as far as we can tell, never introduced her to she. He and she each remained tight-lipped in their respective Parisian social circles, but inevitably, Boursicot's pride seeped out. After all, he'd waited for so long for the chance to, as the New York Times put it, show off his son. Though she posed as Bertrand's uncle when they all went out together, the trio inevitably turned heads. French counter-espionage agents soon zeroed in on this odd relationship. It's not hard to see why. A Chinese communist national, relatively new in town, living with a former international diplomat. It was worrisome. By early summer of 1983, it became not a question of if, rather than when they would be questioned. And in the first week of July, 1983, Boursicot was arrested and charged with espionage. French agents were soon dispatched to his apartment to confirm his story, that he and a Chinese woman named Xi Pei Pu had fallen in love the decade before, that they'd had a son named Bertrand, that Boursicot had used his leverage as a diplomat to move the family out of China, that now mother and son were living in his apartment. But when they got to Boursicot's apartment, the agents were confused. They believed that the person they found in the flat was someone who presented and identified as male. When Xi Pei Pu declined a medical exam to prove their sex, citing health concerns, the agents eventually left. Doubtful that she identified as a woman, French authorities pressed Boursicot for more details about their relationship. Less than a week later, the former opera singer was arrested. She was then charged with what translates to, quote, complicity in the delivery of information to agents of a foreign power. Essentially, the agents accused Xi of posing as a woman and conspiring with Boursicot to pass along sensitive information from the French embassy to the Chinese government. 
Before a formal trial began, she was detained in a men's prison called Fresnes, just south of Paris, the very same facility where Boursicot was being held. But for him to learn his former lover was in the very same building was a cataclysmic surprise. Boursicot couldn't understand why a woman had been placed in a men's prison. It seemed nonsensical. His denial only mounted in the coming weeks. Despite more questioning and even a search of their apartment together, the Frenchman stood by his claim. The entire case was a misunderstanding. However wrong his actions had been in passing on sensitive documents, it had all been for she and Bertrand's happiness, for their safety. Boursicot's certainty faded, though, on July 13, 1983. In prison, he listened to the daily news on a small radio. A report told the story of the M. Butterfly case unfolding. It explained that not only was Shi Pei Pu a Chinese spy, but that a medical examination determined that she was biologically male. The report suggested that Boursicot had been swindled and manipulated for years. Shi Pei Pu was even christened the Chinese Mata Hari, after the beautiful dancer alleged to have extracted secrets from France during World War I. Just like with Mata Hari, the French government took great care to dig into just how far the espionage went. After they were questioned separately over the course of the next six months, finally, in January of 1984, she and Boursicot were interrogated together. She was asked point blank if they purposely sought to entrap the young diplomat back in 1964, and surprisingly, she's demeanor changed. Rather than evade the question, he spoke plainly. She had only let Borsico believe he was a woman. According to the New York Times, she told the judge, quote, I never told Bernard I was a woman. I only let it be understood that I could be a woman. The gravity of this revelation crushed Bernard Borsico. When he was alone, he could ignore the narrative that everyone else believed, that he was a fool who'd been duped. He could chalk it up to media fodder, the press getting a sensational story. But hearing this admission directly from she to a judge appeared to change Borsico's mind. He was stunned. Unspooling the tale even further, she explained that their son Bertrand was only Borsico's by artificial insemination. Of course, there was never a chance that she could have carried the child, but this revelation shocked Boursicot. After being questioned together, the former couple waited to be taken back to friend prison. On the brink of breaking down, Boursicot did the only thing he thought might put his doubts to rest. He insisted she show him proof of what he'd told the judge. Shi Pei Pu didn't protest and simply unzipped his pants to show Boursicot their genitals. From that day on, Boursicot only grew more despondent as reality seemed to crumble around him. The judge ordered a paternity test of their son and to Boursicot's dismay, it revealed that the child wasn't blood related to him or she. 
The gravity of years of deceit was so strong that Boursicot attempted suicide in his jail cell during the spring of 1984, but he survived. The investigation dragged on for two more years until the formal trial of both Boursicot and she began in 1986. Of course, the arguments for and against the espionage charges were clearly split. The prosecutors argued that from their first meeting, she had always maintained one malicious goal, entrap Bernard Boursicot and siphon off sensitive information. Shi Pei Pu's lawyers, though, were adamant that the years-long saga couldn't be an elaborate plot of international espionage. It made no sense. As proof, they pointed to Xi's move to France. The longer that Xi lived openly in Paris, the more likely it became that he would be questioned. No spy worth their salt would be so careless. Similarly, Boursicot's defense argued for the narrative of misunderstood love. While he might have been guilty of giving away classified documents, it was done for the greater good of protecting his lover and child. Boursicot, too, personally echoed this sentiment. Even if she had manipulated him into handing over sensitive information, it was done solely out of fear. He thought it was the only way to avoid being punished by the Chinese communist government. The defense also pointed out that the information Boursicot supplied to Xi's compatriot, Kong, was hardly dangerous. The papers were mundane writings from French diplomats in Mongolia. They might as well have been diary entries. If the intent had been for China to cause harm to France, it failed. In the end, perhaps angling their case as one of passion, albeit foolish and delusional, was what secured both Xi and Boursicot lenient sentences. Though both were sentenced to six years for espionage, each was pardoned before serving their full terms. Xi's pardon came first in the spring of 1987 after serving 11 months, apparently at the behest of François Mitterrand. The French president feared the entire affair received too much media attention and that keeping Xi in prison might damage diplomatic relations with China even further. Boursicot was released just months later in August of 1987. In the end, there are still so many unanswered questions about this intriguing story. Was it a honey trap all along? Or was a burgeoning relationship manipulated by a regime hungry for information? Was Xi Pei Pu's deception sinister from the start? Or did he have genuine feelings for Bernard Boursicot? Unfortunately, we'll probably never know. Until their death in 2009, she spoke publicly about the affair, though always with language that veiled the full truth. Even leaving those questions unanswered, the fact seems to be that at some point, she posed, lured, and seduced. A textbook honey trap. What makes the honey trap such a fascinating move is the effect it has on its mark. Not only did Bernard Boursicot fall into Xi's trap, he felt somewhat culpable for his role in it in the end. After the case had wound down, when both Boursicot and Xi were pardoned, 
the aging diplomat still seemed to blame himself, or at least to regret that he could fall in love with someone like she. As people reported, Bursico insisted, quote, it's better to be cheated than cheat. I am just sorry the story was not the one I was believing. Surprisingly, this is perhaps the closest the Frenchman came to admitting that he had been played, that despite his savvy and intelligence, he had fallen victim. In love, Bernard Boursicot had little reason to think he was being duped. He was simply supporting the reality that she presented. What that reality truly was, we may never know. Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. We'll be back next week with the last episode of our Femme Fatale series. We're diving into the life of Mata Hari and we'll examine what led to her sensational fame and her twisted path to infamy. For more information on Shi Pei Pu, along the many sources we used, we found Liaison by Joyce Wadler, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Female Criminals and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Female Criminals is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Michael Motion, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Bruce Kitovich. This episode of Female Criminals was written by Mackenzie Moore, with writing assistance by Joel Callen, fact-checking by Haley Milliken, and research by Chelsea Wood. I'm Vanessa Richardson. Listeners, don't forget to check out the Spotify original from Parcast, Serial Killers. Every Monday and Thursday, take a deep dive into the minds and madness of history's most notorious murderers. You can binge hundreds of episodes, four years worth, and catch new episodes weekly. Listen to Serial Killers free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.